Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today is Naomi Oreskes. Naomi's a historian of science, but that title doesn't do her justice. She's also been a working scientist and, in more recent years, a major public figure. Naomi has an amazing CV and so many awards that I don't even want to try to list them. An entry about her on the webpage at Harvard, where she's a professor, calls her a leading voice on the role of science in society and the reality of anthropogenic climate change, and that, if anything, is an understatement. Naomi got on a lot of people's radar in 2004 for her research article showing that the overwhelming majority of scientific papers on climate accepted the mainstream view that humans are causing global warming, and her subsequent book with Eric Conway, Merchants of Doubts, explained the workings of the modern movements of science denial. That became a huge deal with a movie about it, and Naomi's famous for that, but she has done much more than that in her life, and you'll hear a lot about it in this interview. We talked about her younger days as a mining geologist in Australia, how she switched from science to the history of science, her various projects up to her present ones, and she tells a lot of good stories. I first met Naomi about seven years ago when I was first writing and speaking publicly a lot after Hurricane Sandy, and she has had a big influence on how I think about communicating to the public on climate and on how I do it. We've become friends in the last few years, and this interview was recorded in her beautiful home in the Massachusetts countryside. The one thing we don't talk a lot about in this interview is Merchants of Doubt itself. Naomi has done countless interviews about that for years, and so we focused instead on her new book, or I should say one of her new books, because Naomi's incredibly productive. But we focused on the new book, Why Trust Science? We get to it in the latter part of the interview after we go through Naomi's biography. But rather than me telling you any more, let's let Naomi speak for herself. So here, without further ado, is my interview with Naomi Oreskes. That's going to be the cover that it is? Yeah, that is that is the cover that I've seen. I've, I mean, I've seen the text and I've seen the cover. I just haven't seen it put together like that as an actual book. So that's nice. Yeah. Well, thank you for getting me the uh, copy. Oh, no worries. I felt yeah. very honored to be reading it before everybody oh, else. Well, the Princeton have <laughs> been good about that. They've been pretty generous about sending out copies. That's good. Yeah. So I, I, I thought that uh, maybe we could uh, start for real, if you don't mind, um, with uh, your biography, a little sure. bit of that, however, in however much detail you want to do it before talking about Sure. Uh, the book. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't know that my biography is that exciting. But I was born in New York City. I think probably the relevant part of my biography is that I was a Sputnik baby. I was born in 1958, same year as the International Geophysical Year, same year that Dave Keeling started measuring CO2 at Mount Loa. and science was the thing. You know, I grew up in a community where people really believed in science, and where there was this sort of kind of general ambiance that science and technology were the future, right? And science yeah. and technology were linked to progress, but also to, um, I don't know, just making the world a better place, I guess. And my dad was a scientist, and he really believed in science. And uh, I went to public schools, which in New York City at that time, the public schools were okay, but not great, but the high schools were bad. So it was a thing then, as I guess it is still now, to try to get into a special high school if you could. Yeah. So um, I went to Stuyvesant High School, and Stuyvesant was a math and science-focused high school. And one of the interesting things about science, Stuyvesant was that I would say, honestly, the vast majority of the students there were not interested in math or science at all. They just really? went there. Yeah, because they went because it was a good school and because their parents couldn't afford private school. So it was just a school filled with bright kids who whose parents wanted them to go to a decent school. 
And so you had all these people taking piles of math and science, but not actually be interested in it. But I actually was interested in science. So if you were interested in science, then your teachers liked you <laughs> because, you know, especially your science <laughs> teachers. I had a very great physics teacher um, in high school, Abe Baumel. And then there was sort of the gender thing too. I was in high school in the 70s, so it was kind of the heyday of women's liberation. And so there was just a lot of social reinforcement, I would say, that if you were a girl who could do science, if you were a girl who was good at math, there was this sort of tremendous social... I think pressure is not quite the white word, but it's sort of momentum or flow pushing you in the direction of science. And so that's what I did. The other thing I really was interested in was geology and earth science. And um, I really liked my earth science class. And in fact, my earth science teacher, Mr. Orna, talked to, taught us about the greenhouse effect back in 1973. Wow. Although, again, more is like a natural phenomenon, right? That that's why, the, like we, like I grew up knowing you know, why the earth had an equitable climate because of the role of CO2 and water vapor in the atmosphere. Like we learned that in high school. So I really liked earth science and you got to be outdoors. And Mr. Orna actually took us on field trips. So I, one of my first field trips went on this fossil hunting field trip to New Jersey. I think I still have the fossils from that trip um, in ninth grade. So I, I was lucky. I got exposed to fun science at a pretty early age. I went to a pretty decent school. And so, yeah, that was kind of how I ended up in geology and earth science. That's great. And so then um, you continued that as a college student. And right. So I went to Brown as a geology major. I was sort of bored and restless at Brown. And uh, frankly, it wasn't as hard as Stuyvesant. My first year, I got all A's and I thought, oh, this school can't be any good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my junior year, I went abroad to the University of London, uh -huh. to the Royal School of Mines at Imperial College, enrolled there and loved it and had a great time. And London was a much more interesting city than Providence. So it was just really fun. So anyway, we had these first year exams that didn't technically count, but we were encouraged to take them seriously. And I did. And at the end of the first year, I came out at the top of my class. And I should add, I was one of only two women in the class um, and the only American, well, the only person from the US. We also had one Canadian guy. And um, anyway, my tutor said to me, would you like to stay? Uh -huh. And I said, well, is that possible? And he said, well, yeah, we discussed it and we don't want to lose our best student. <laughs> so then I had to like call my parents and get like persuade my parents that this was a good idea. And when you got the top grades, you didn't think there was something wrong with the school? No, no. You it was, it was confidence? Yeah, <laughs> well, it was tough. No, it was very, we worked really hard. It was a much more rigorous program and it was just okay. geology. I mean, it was all geology all the time. And, and then we did all these field trips so you wouldn't yeah. just learn about these things theoretically, but you'd actually go and see them. And England is an amazing place for stratigraphy because there's so much geology, so much stratigraphy, like close to London. And yeah. also because so many of these, the, so much of the geological time scale was worked out in England. Uh -huh. Many of the places like the Devonian was worked out in Devon, right? right? Or the Silurian, you know, was worked out. Yeah. Um, or Cambrian, you know, the Cambrian and the Precambrian. Cambria is the ancient name for whales, right? So uh, we would go to all these places, you know, trace the footsteps of Murchison and Sedgwick and Lyle and Darwin. And so it was very exciting. Like you felt yeah. like the kind of the education fit together with both the theory and the practice. Um, so it was just really fun. I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. And we also had geostatistics, yeah. which at the time was very new, but um, statistics developed specifically to work with spatially heterogeneous data huh. and data that was autocorrelated, which conventional statistics doesn't handle very well. And I found that very exciting. And I 
really enjoyed that and ended up like writing computer programs to like apply geostatistical insights to actually analyze data. And I guess like none of my professors had ever done that because they were all like, well, I don't know, this was in the days of Fortran 4, right? I mean, this is going back a long time, boxes of cards, you know, the whole nine yards. Anyway, it was just a great experience. I had a great education. I had a lot of fun, made good friends and uh, graduated at the top of my class. So it was all good. (laughs) And then what happened after that? I went to Australia. So Royal School of Mines was very, as the name suggests, it was very industry-oriented. The whole point of our program was really to train us for jobs in industry. And so uh, about half my class went and worked for the oil and gas industry. A lot of people went to the North Sea. And about the other half, a few people went into engineering, geology, sand and gravel, road stuff, you know. Anyway, the other half mostly went into the mining industry. Yeah. A lot of the people went to South Africa. I didn't want to go to South Africa for obvious reasons. So the other place where there was a lot of work was Australia. And yeah. so I applied to a bunch of companies in Australia and got a job. So you, were you working up in the Kimberley or somewhere around No, there? I worked in the northern part of South Australia. I worked oh, on okay. a, So I worked on a specific project, this deposit that had been found a few years before that was getting a lot of attention. It was the single largest mineral discovery in the world in the 19, late 1970s. So it was like quite brand new when I went out there in 81. And it was a very great discovery for the company because it was no surface outcrop at all. Uh It was completely discovered based on a geological model and then exploration geophysics. They had found a coincident gravity and magnetic anomaly and drilled into that anomaly. And it was the ore deposit was 300 meters below the surface. Uh. So it was an amazing triumph of both geological, you know, insight, exploration insight, and tremendous confidence on the part of the corporate leadership to be willing to back up their scientists. And that, yeah. I, that was the most special thing actually about my company, Western Mining. Most companies, you couldn't get the suits, as we used to call them, the suits in Melbourne to really take a chance on scientific ideas because they didn't understand the ideas typically. And anyway, to drill 300 meters of unmineralized rock, I mean, this is like, you know, a thousand feet of core going through sandstones, limestones, nothing, nothing, nothing. You know, I mean, this is like really an act of courage and you can just imagine the geologist trying not to flinch as he says, keep going, right? And they hit and then they hit ore and it turned out to be this giant discovery. So it was a big thing. Lots of people were talking about it and I got offered a job to go there and that was very exciting. It was like, oh, I can go to Olympic Dam. I mean, that's like, that was the best job that a brand new geologist out of college could have possibly got at that time. And what was your job to do? I was a core logger. <laughs> yeah, I logged, I don't know how much core, but I spent three years basically logging I mean, core. that means the core is what they're pulling out as they're drilling it and you're keeping track of what all is in all the different layers. Right. Okay. So I did the core logging and then I participated in the ore reserve estimations. And that was where I got to apply my geostatistical knowledge because up until that time, the techniques for doing ore reserve estimations were pretty primitive. Like if you drill the core, you know, you'd draw a polygon around that drill hole and then you would just assume that whatever you got in the core was representative of that polygon and then you'd have another polygon next to it. It was very primitive. So like, ore reserve estimation means what? figuring out how much is down there. Right. Oh, yeah. It was pretty primitive. It was basically arithmetic, yeah. you know. Um, but what, So I was part of a team 
that did a geostatistical analysis of the ore deposit. Mm. And that turned out to be pretty important because the numbers you got were actually quite different than if you had just done it by the sort of old-fashioned arithmetic. And so that was a great experience because I was the only one on the team who understood geostatistics. So they assigned me to work with these consultants. And so at an early age, I was put in this sort of, you know, teaching or professorial kind of thing. And I had to, I, I remember I had to do this seminar for our staff, including the chief geologist, where I had to sit down and kind of explain to everybody what geostatistics was and how it worked and why we were going to get a better, a better result if we applied this statistical mm. technique. And it worked. I mean, people were persuaded and, and everyone thought I had done a good job. And remember, this is also, I'm the only woman on this team. I mean, of how many? Besides the chief geologist, I think we had about, five or six junior geologists. So it was uh-huh. like a team of yeah. six or seven people. There were a couple of other women who worked for the company at the time, but they were like on other projects. Um, but there weren't a lot. I think Western Mining at the time had about 120 geoscientists. I think when I arrived, there were three. And then one on the left, now there were two. So over 100 geoscientists and two were women. So you were very conscious of this? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, you felt like everything you did... I always felt like, you know, it was, I think, the classic thing of you had to be twice as good because you felt like everybody was waiting for you to screw up. And the minute you screwed up, people would say, see, girls can't be geologists. And I didn't feel that way about the people I worked with in my immediate team, but we were all in our 20s. And we we were a great group. We all got along. We were friends. We liked each other. So I always felt supported by my immediate group. But you definitely knew there were other people who were Mm. not necessarily on your side. And the engineers were pretty skeptical. And a lot of the drillers... I mean, they would give you a hard time in a friendly way. And I mean, they would sort of do things to test you. Like, you know, like there was one of my jobs also was in the morning, like you had to go out and check the rigs. Some geologists had to go out every morning and check the rigs to see, like, how was the drilling going? Were we still drilling an ore or did it look like we'd bottomed out? And then you'd stop the rig. And you obviously want to stop as soon as you've bottomed out because otherwise you're wasting money drilling something that you don't need. So when it was my turn... The first time it was my turn to do the rig check in the morning, I get to one of the rigs and the driller is standing there stark naked. <laughs> it's like, so this is obviously a test. And I'm like, hey, Mac, how's it going? You know, how's the drilling? You know, oh, fine. Like, you're just like, okay, well, looks like it's good to me. You know, have a good day. <laughs> right. So that was part of it. It's like, they just wanted, I don't know. I think it was like, they wanted to see what you were made out of and, you know, were you going to flinch? And of course they told all kinds of ribald jokes and Australian Drillers generally, you know, right. It's curse kind of up hard hat kind of job. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of the culture, but they were good guys. We got, I mean, I got on fine. And had you planned uh, from the beginning of this that you'd go back to graduate yeah. school? Or, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I never thought I was going to do that forever, but I right. wanted to have that experience and right. the practical experience and the connection between. I was never really that motivated by purely abstract science. I was always more motivated by science that was applied to real things in the world. And so mining geology was always. There was a kind of grittiness and realness about it that I just loved. I loved the idea that we were doing this work and applying our scientific knowledge and we were going to build a mine and people would have jobs and yeah. ore would come out of the ground. I mean, at that point, it was still development. So it wasn't like we were actually making any money for the company yet. Mm. But it was still super exciting to see like ore coming out of the ground and mm. think, you know, this is copper that's going to end up in copper wire or stuff. I don't know. I just really always liked that, you know, real life thing. Yeah. So... And then the only bad part of it is that then when we started developing underground, I really wanted to work underground. I liked being underground and I thought it was, it was incredibly exciting to be able to see the earth in three dimensions. 
especially after you'd been drilling all this drill core. You know, drill cores are like toothpicks in the ground, right? So these yeah. tiny little samples of rock. And the, the big challenge to understand is a very, very complicated deposit. So it was extremely difficult to know what was going on structurally based on the drill core. And so the time came to put a geologist underground mapping and the two people on the team who were most sort of logical to go underground, one of them just didn't want to work underground. He was like sort of claustrophobic and he had taught our, told our boss he didn't want to. Mm. And the other smoked heavily. And this deposit was a polymetallic deposit with uranium, mm. pretty high levels of radon underground. So pretty stupid really for a smoker to work underground. Mm. So my boss came to me and he said, Neil and Work don't want to work underground. How would you feel about doing it? And I said, great, <laughs> like sign me up. I can't wait. And I knew it was like a little bit of an issue because I know that like in the mining industry, there were all these superstitions about how it wasn't, it was like bad luck to have women underground. Uh. And I knew that some of the engineers were like, mm, maybe not that sure, but <laughs> I got on well with people. I had a good reputation. You know, people knew I was smart and hardworking. And I, and I, so George said to me, great. He goes, we'll do it. And I really thought we would. I didn't have any reason to think. And then like about a week later, he came back to me and said, oh, there's been a change of plans. Uh, and then he said, Neil's going to go underground after all this is the smoker. Uh, and then he said, Neil needs it for his career. Uh, and then I remember being really angry because I remember thinking like, yeah. well, what the fuck? I don't need it for my career, you know? Yeah. Right? So that was like a moment of classic sexism where yeah. my boss is thinking about the career development of a guy, but he's not actually thinking about the career yeah. development of the woman. Yeah. And it was... I had been pretty much planning that I would go back to school at some point anyway. So at that point, I think that was when I thought, okay, I've logged enough core. If they're not sending me underground, then I'm not, I'm not going to stay here, you know? And right. so at that point, I went back to school. So that was after a few years, and then you went to Stanford. Stanford. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so anything you want to say about those years? That seems pretty important. Yeah. Time. So I went to Stanford. So because this ore deposit was so important and so interesting, I proposed to the company that I would work on it for my PhD and they agreed. And oh, I see. So you're still engaged with them. Okay. So yeah. yeah. So I went to Stanford to do my PhD on Olympic Dam and Stanford was great. Uh, yeah, I love Stanford. I mean, it was what was not to like. It was a great university in a beautiful place. I met my husband, um, had great friends there. Geology department was a very congenial place, very supportive. Um, but I was a little like intellectually restless and the end of my mm. first year, a couple of things happened because I had been educated in England. I was much more advanced than most of the American students. So I had yeah. already taken like the whole first year curriculum that you were expected to take. I had already done all of that. Yeah. Um, and then I'd worked for three years. That wasn't that unusual, but what was different about me was that um, because I was working exactly on the same thing I had worked on in industry, I had collected all these samples before leaving Australia mm -hmm. And my company had sort of said it was okay. I spent pretty much the last six weeks I was there, like collecting the samples and the materials that I would bring back to America to work on. Yeah. Um, so I was very advanced in my research compared to where a lot of other graduate students were at the end of the first year. Yeah. And, and it was also a time when the mining industry in the United States was kind of collapsing. And so there were very few jobs in mineral exploration in the United States at that time. And so I was in this situation where I was very advanced in my work, 
but the field I was in was shrinking. Mm. And it was at a time when hydrogeology and environmental things were sort of really starting to take off. Mm. And so all of us in ore deposits kind of, there were a number of times when we sat around over beers talking about, you know, what we were going to, what we were going to do. And I thought, well, I'd always been interested in history and philosophy of science. So I thought, let me just take some classes. And I really didn't think it was going to be a career move. I just thought, because I'm advanced in my work, I can afford to take time to like do some other like interesting yeah. things just because I want to. And I'm at Stanford. It's a great university. Like, why not take advantage Sounds of good. it? Yeah. yeah. So I, I signed up for this fluid dynamics class uh-huh. and I went to the first day and, you know, it was like this hour long lecture. And at the end of the lecture, it was one of those lecture rooms with whiteboards all around the room, you know? Yeah. And at the end of the hour, the, entire room was filled with equations, right. you know? Uh, Naomi's making emotions with her arms to indicate a 360-degree yeah. <laughs> right. uh, so uh, span by, of equations. Yeah. And, and it was one of these interesting moments. I understood it. It wasn't like I was lost intellectually. And I thought to myself, I could do this, but it just doesn't feel right. You this, know? this hurts because I've taught this class many times. There you go. Well, you know, but so there you go. <laughs> Sorry I mean, we lost you. No, it's okay. No, you know. it turned out well for everybody. Yeah, and you know, mineral, I mean, it's like microscope work, lab work. You know, we all have the things that we really get jazzed about, and we have yeah. things we don't get jazzed about. And even though I was good in math, I mean, I was never I was never bad at math. I mean, I could handle it. I just didn't really love it. You know, yeah. it just didn't really... Didn't yeah. float my boat. Yeah. So I went, I remember this very clear. I went back to my office and I pulled out the course catalog. So this is going back far enough that we actually still had physical course catalogs. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, that old too. <laughs> yeah. I started flipping through it and there was this course called The Growth of Scientific Knowledge and it was in the philosophy department. And I thought, let me just check that out. And so I went and it was taught by this young hotshot professor, Peter Gallison. Um, and I signed up for the class for credit. I don't know really why I did that, but I guess, I don't know, I did. And so, and I took the first exam. And when we got the exams back, Peter came up to me and he said to me, who are you? <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm a PhD student in geology. And he said, well, I have this graduate group in philosophy of science. It's graduate students. We get together once a week and we read papers. It was like a journal club. We read books and papers and talk about them. And he says, would you like to join? Uh-huh. So I did. And um, it was a little bit like that geostatistics thing. So Peter said to me, and the rest of the people in the group were all PhD students in philosophy of science. Uh-huh. Also, again, all men. I was the only woman, the only geologist. And Peter said, well, there's this book that just came out. It's called The Great Devonian Controversy. Uh-huh. Have you ever read this or seen this? No, no. Really important book. So it was by this guy, Martin Redwick. Martin had been a geologist himself. He was actually a quite successful pretty well-known paleontologist. He had taught at Cambridge, but he had become interested in history of science and he had shifted from geology to history of geology. And he'd written this book that was getting a lot of attention. And it was about the question of, what well, was about this debate that took place in England in the um, 1830s, 1840s, if memory serving, about the construction of the geological time frame and about this set of rocks that people had this big dispute about what mm. unit of geological time it belonged to. And that group of rocks ended up becoming what we now call the Devonian. Yeah. Which so is how long ago for those of us who don't know the geological uh, time oh, record properly? Terrible. See, now I used to know all this stuff like this. Okay, well... I'm the, embarrassed that I don't uh, know. It, I want to say it's like 
250, 300 million years ago, something like that. Sounds I'd have to check. To so it's a long time ago. Yeah. But it was a really important study because it's taking this question. We have this thing in nature, this period of the geological past that we call the Devonian. But how did scientists decide that the Devonian was the Devonian? How did they decide that this group of rocks represents a slice of geologic time? You just mean where to draw the boundaries of it? Or? Well, partly that, partly where to draw the boundaries, but partly what does it even mean to say that a, that there is a unit of this, like, like why this and why not something else? And how do you identify? And there was also this big argument about whether the rocks, whether the rocks should be characteristic by their lithology, like what the rocks look like, what minerals, or whether they could be defined by their fossils. And remember, this is before Darwin. So it's before we have a notion right. of evolution. Like now we take it for granted that certain fossils represent certain times yeah. in geological history. But this is before that was known. Right. So they recognize that there appear to be these characteristic fossils. And Roderick Murchison makes the argument that these fossils do, in fact, represent a particular time in geologic history. And therefore, if you see these particular fossils, you can say, yes, you're in this particular time period. But Henry de la Beach argues, no, we don't know that, because how do we know that those fossils don't show up again somewhere else later on? Right. Um, so therefore, he said we should be defining them by the rocks, like particular limestones or particular well, in this case, great wackies, right? So there's this big debate. And what Martin did absolutely brilliantly was to completely untangle this debate and bring us back to what it was like to be a geologist in 1830, looking at these uh. rocks. And you don't, evolution doesn't, you know, we don't have the theory of evolution yet. We don't have the geological time frame. Right. You just have these rocks and you're trying to make sense of what you're seeing in front of your eyes. Yeah. And it's an absolutely brilliant piece of work. I mean, to this day, I still think it's, the best, most important book ever written in my field. But of course, I'm partial because it's about geology. Anyway, it had just come out. It was getting attention. And Martin also applied some pretty cutting-edge theory from sociology of scientific knowledge, which not too many people in history of science had done yet. So it was a very important cutting-edge book. But Peter hadn't yet read it, so he handed it to me. And it was a big book, like 400 pages. Yeah. Um, he handed it to me. He goes, well... Why don't you read this and present it in Journal Club next week? I'm like next week, okay. Yeah. So I go home, I read Was this. that the normal time scale? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Whatever it was. I didn't know. How did I know what was normal? I'm like brand new to any of this. So I go home, I read the book, I just fall in love with it. I think this is just like this field is so unbelievably exciting. Like mm. so interesting to be able to think about, you know, if we say that something's a fact, that this rock that this is a rock and it's from the Devonian. The Devonian is 300 million years ago or whatever the number is. We'll have to check that before you put this online. <laughs> um, how do we know that, right? How do we know these things that we claim we know, right? Yeah, I mean, that right. was really the question. And I just yeah. thought that was the most exciting thing. And so I came into class yeah. the following week. And I, again, this is before we had PowerPoint or anything. So I had my little index cards yeah. and I brought in samples. So one of the things I wanted to do was, so this... In the book, he talks about gray waxings and limestones and this and that and certain fossils. And I knew that these philosophy students wouldn't know what any of that stuff was. So I went down to the lab, went to the like petrology lab, and I got out samples of all the relevant rocks that are discussed in the book. Mm -hmm. And so I did this presentation with the rocks and the fossils and the thing, and it was great. I mean, yeah. everyone loved it, and, and people were like... Who are you? <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was, that was my kind of eureka moment where I realized there was this field that it would, 
make use of my scientific talents and my interest in science, but had this kind of broader intellectual compass. And so that began. And it was, I didn't like ditch geology altogether because I was already pretty vested in my scientific work. But um, Peter and I figured out a way that I could combine them. And so I did a joint PhD program in geology and history of science okay. at Stanford. And Stanford like allowed that. Um, so I have an actual combined PhD. And I, meanwhile, got to know Martin Redwick. He became a mentor. And he had gone through the same transition that I was now hoping to do. So it didn't seem crazy. And so with Martin's encouragement, I took a job in an earth science department. I became an assistant professor at Dartmouth in yeah. the geology department. But it didn't work. <laughs> that's, so that's when things started. Well, but they hired you, though. Well, it was, it was a complicated thing. What happened was it was a two-career thing. My, they, hired, they advertised for a hydrogeologist. My husband and I applied, and we said, we're a couple, but here's what Naomi does. And there was a dean at the time. He is a hydrogeologist. Right, he is Ken, a hydrogeologist. Right, Ken is a hydrogeologist. <laughs> so Ken was offered the job as the hydrogeologist. But there was a dean there at the time who was really interested in history of science. He was a physicist, mm-hmm. but he he loved the idea of bringing in someone who would do history of science. So he sort mm-hmm. of agreed with this sort of pitch that I was making. And the chair of the department at the time was also a very enlightened person, Chuck Drake. He was an oceanographer who had been at Lamont mm-hmm. oh, in okay. Columbia. Yeah. So Chuck and Bruce Pipes discussed it. They thought it was a great idea, and they hired me. But then two things happened. Pipes left. He went to become, I think it was the provost of Franklin Marshall. And Chuck got overturned in a kind of department coup d'etat. The department got taken over by an aggressive young scientist who thought history of science was a waste of time. And he made my life they're basically impossible. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So it was a bad experience. So that was kind of a shock because up until then, I'd been very successful. I'd been supported. I'd had mentors who, you know, had been good to me. And now I was in this very difficult situation. So that was bad. But I always say, you know, it's good in your life to have one really bad job because then it makes you appreciate the good ones that <laughs> I, follow. I know that's for sure true. Yeah. And also because, honestly, this guy was truly malicious and one of the things I've learned in life is that when things get messed up in life, it's much, much more likely to be the result of incompetence rather than malice. You know, right. people are disorganized, people are confused, they're overworked, they're overly busy, they take on too much, they make mistakes. It's rarely malice. It really is rarely malice. Mm-hmm. But having seen actual malice <laughs> in practice, it's actually really helped me sort that through and to realize that most of the time people really don't mean badly. They just, you know, drop the ball. And that's really helped me a lot in my career because, you know, in academic life or any job, things go wrong all the time. And yeah. knowing that most of the time it's just like mistakes, that has actually been for me like really good. So, I won't say I'm grateful to this person for having been a horrible human being, but um, but I definitely you know learned from the experience. So I want to make sure that we do get to your new book. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. But I also want to hear about at least some version of of the rest of the history leading up to now. So mm-hmm. so after the bad experience at Dartmouth is when you go to San Diego. If I'm not no, mistaken. Oh, there was something at NYU and then San Diego. Right at oh, that point, oh, okay. I yeah, at that point, I realized that the dream of being a historian of science in a science department was probably not going to work. It probably just wasn't realistic. So at that point, I I looked for a job as a historian of science. And I got hired at first at NYU in the Gallatin School, Mm -hmm. which was very fun. I liked my colleagues, loved my students there, but um, didn't like living in the concrete jungle of Greenwich Village. 
And um, even though you were born in New York, yeah, I know I was born and raised <laughs> in New York, but yeah, I hear you. Yeah, it's love always, love hate for all of us, and when just the proportions and the particular shades. Yeah, and especially NYU. <laughs> I mean, at least Columbia, like you have a little bit more green space uptown. Anyway, so um, but then Ken and I had always had the idea that if we could get back to California, that would be a good thing. Mm. And so an, a job opened in San Diego and um, he was able to go back to the USGS in the mm-hmm. San Diego office of the California district. I got hired at UCSD in the history department. And so that was my opportunity to commit then at that point. So, I mean, I'd spent right. a lot of time kind of trying to keep having a foot in both camps and I still was doing, I was, oh, that was in there. I was still doing scientific work at Dartmouth also. I did a project, right. a big project in Chile, um, which we published and wrote up and was good work and has stood the test of time. I mean, my scientific yeah. work has stood the test of time. I gave a talk at Stanford a couple of years ago in which one of my former professors, Gail Mayhood, introduced me and actually said that. And she even like looked up my citation index and found it that my PhD work was, you know, I don't know, had hundreds of citations or something. So that was good. That's you know? great. Mine so, does not. There you go. Yeah, no, you. my PhD work has held up very well. I'm very <laughs> proud of what I've done. I'm not a failed scientist. Um, I'm a scientist who decided to expand in certain different directions. Anyway, but once I went to um, NYU and then UCSD, that was a commitment to then um, be a historian of science. Right. And that's where you got interested in climate? Is that the... Yeah, so what happened was, so my first book was on the debate over continental drift. Yeah. And that, I finished that book and got tenure. And then I did a second book that was an edited volume on the history of plate tectonics, where I worked with the scientists who had been involved in plate tectonics and got them to tell their stories. Uh And so we published that in 2001, 2002, something like that. Yeah. And so then it was time, like, for my, like, what would my full professor book be? What would my next big project be? And so I decided to write a book on the history of oceanography for a couple of reasons. So I was in San Diego at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I had a joint appointment there. Yeah. We had this amazing archive, one of the best archives in the United States for earth sciences at Scripps, and a fantastic archivist there who knew her collections very well. Um, and also I had young children, so I needed a project where I could go to the archive and still be home for dinner. <laughs> so there was a practical component. Where, when, in which place were your kids born? They were born in. Uh, they were born in New Hampshire, but okay, so yeah. they were born when we were at Dartmouth, but they okay. were still little. When we moved to San Diego, Clara was in preschool and Hannah was first grade. Okay, and yeah, so they were little, you know. So I couldn't take on a project where I was going to have to spend months at some archive in Russia or something like right, that. Just right. wasn't practical. Um, but anyway, I mean, I felt like there's this amazing opportunity right here in San Diego. Like, why yeah. not? Why not? like work on it. And so I had worked on, you know, solid earth things and his, mm-hmm. like everything I'd done up to that was solid earth geology and geophysics. But I thought, you know, mm-hmm. I could handle oceanography, right? Did you have, I mean, in the case of the continental drift, it sounded like you had a, you started with a sort of a, a clear question with history of oceanography. Was there yes, such? Okay. Right. And that was the third part. And I also had a question. So I, what I was very interested in was, so it came out of the plate tectonics work. So there was this big debate in the 1920s about continental drift, and American scientists said, no, we don't think it's true. Then they reopened the debate in the 1960s. And when they reopen the debate, they do it with a whole new body of evidence. Mm-hmm. And the vast bulk of that new evidence came from the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so I had become interested, well, where did that evidence come from? Like, how did we get all this new... And the answer had to do with the Navy 
the Navy, U.S. Navy becoming interested in oceanography in the Cold War because of anti-submarine warfare yeah. and the importance of oceanography for understanding the environment in which submarine-launched ballistic missiles would right. operate. And so I thought, well, this would be a very interesting opportunity to think through the problem of what difference does it make who's paying for the science. Uh-huh. And so this is the opening of the book. It's right. what difference does it make who pays for the science. So that's the okay. question. And so what I'm doing is it's not really a history of oceanography per se. It's an investigation of the role of patronage through the lens of oceanography. Right. Because oceanography is a fantastic place to look at it because before like 1926, there essentially is no oceanography in America. Yeah. There's none. And then people begin to say, we should have oceanography, but it's really, they don't have much money. They're a little bit of private philanthropy. There's a little bit of money, like from the Rockefeller Foundation, National Academy of Sciences, you know, is trying to get this thing going, but nothing much is happening. And then World War II hits. And that's when things begin to change. And the yeah. Navy begins to realize that oceanography is really important for yeah. sonar, for, um, submarine detection, submarine navigation. And then after the war, for this idea that we could put nuclear missiles on submarines. Yeah. And so you get this giant influx of money to oceanography. Yeah. And so I thought this is great. Like, cause we don't have controlled experiments in history, but sometimes you can find right. places that it's not exactly a controlled experiment, but it's kind of close. And that's where yeah. my, I still think about history in a much more scientific way than most of my colleagues do. Cause I'm always thinking about, well, where, you know, what incident, what area could I, used to sort of answer this question. Yeah. Anyway, so I started working on this. It was great. I got an, I wrote an NSF grant, got funding for it, started working, dug into the archives, really like huge amount of great material. But I sort of did this kind of thing. I sometimes do this in my historical work. I work backwards from the present because in a way it's easier. You start in the present that you understand and then you kind of work back into things that you don't yet understand. Yeah. So I decided to start with what has actually now become the final chapter of the book. So I actually wrote first what ended up being the last chapter. And it was about this incident, this project called ATOC. We, we should first of all say that yeah. you're you're talking about doing this when you'd first started the script. But you're also talking about the book in the present tense because this is a book that you're just I've, finishing now. Correct. Was 17 years later, I'm finally finishing. <laughs> right. Exactly. So just to explain right. the, exactly. the, the, Thank the you. time That's discontinuity correct. there. That's good. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> this is my life is a good example of how you know, if you just stick with it, things do pay off. <laughs> Not always right away. So, yes, it's a slightly complicated story. So it goes like this. I start working on this thing that had happened at Scripps only a few years before. So this is now the years about 2002. In the 90s, a group of oceanographers had come up with this idea that they could prove once and for all whether or not the climate was warming, global warming, mm-hmm. man-made climate, by measuring the temperature of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And you could do that by measuring the speed of sound in the ocean because the speed of sound is temperature dependent. Yep. It's a pretty clever idea. And some of the people who got involved in this were very famous people. Carl Wunsch yep. at MIT, Walter Monk at Scripps, some other good smart people. Yeah. As I remember, they were going to send the sound across the ocean from one end to the other. Correct. So you get a long transit time. So you can, yeah. Exactly. So it was very clever scientifically. And it was a kind of classic... Uh, swords into plowshare project because this is at the end of the cold war it's early 1990s mm. and they have this idea that they can use the military systems the SOSIS system the sound surveillance system right. that the u.s military has built to detect soviet submarines that the same hardware 
could be used for this scientific right. experiment. Is this the thing that got uh, into trouble for disturbing the whales? Okay, Bingo. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but the whole thing blew up in their face and this okay. giant kind of a catastrophe. So the University of California was actually sued by a group, a consortium of environmental organizations on the grounds that this would hurt marine mammals and violate the law that it would violate the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So it was this right. giant thing. It was a huge embarrassment for Scripps. It was a very personally upsetting experience for Walter Monk. And all of the materials about this project were in the archives. And right. Walter was still around. I was able to talk to a lot of the people. Yeah. So I started with that. And I thought, well, let's start at the end and try to understand. So this is a project It's coming out of the end of the Cold War. These scientists are trying to shift from having worked on Cold War secret military projects to doing a public project related to climate change and the environment, and it doesn't go well. So I started working on this, and in the process of doing this, I read there were public hearings that were held mm -hmm. uh, yeah. both in California, D.C., Hawaii, there were all these public hearings about this project, and a lot of public people came and protested. And one of the things that came up in the hearings that more than one ordinary citizen said was, we don't need this project to prove global warming. We already know that the world is warming. Right. So I'm reading this, and I can still see myself in the archive. This is like the year 2002. I'm reading this. The letter is from like 1992, 93, because that's when this whole debate kind of blew up. And I remember very clearly thinking to myself, is that true? Did we already know in 1992 that and there the was... the year that you're doing this is... It's like 2002. Okay. And so I thought... Wow, like, why would these people think that we already knew in 1992 that there was global warming? So I started digging more into the whole history of climate science right. and the work that people at Scripps, like Roger Ravel and Walter and Dave Keeling and, and other folks, had done on climate change. Yeah. And I came to the conclusion that the citizens were actually right, yeah. that we actually did know. I mean, not all the details that we know today, of course. Of course, we've learned more. But then in a general way, I mean, that's why we right. had the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So, and I started talking to colleagues at Scripps and asking them, you know, do you think it's true that we, we already, and they were all like, yeah, I mean, kind of what I just said, not all the details, but in a, the basic framework, yes. And so as it happened, I got invited to give a big invited lecture at AAAS that year on this question of scientific consensus. So I I did this lecture. The title was The Scient Scientific Consensus or Consensus in Science, How Do We Know We're Not Wrong? Because okay. I was thinking through this whole question of, okay, well, if scientists say something's true, but how do we really know it's true? What does it even mean to say we have a consensus? Because yeah. I had been sort of tracking this other question at the same time. So I gave this talk, and it was mostly based on the continental drift debate. It was mm -hmm. mostly based on, like, what are the lessons that we can learn from that history? Mm -hmm. But I thought it would be useful in the talk to bring it up to date with a contemporary example. So I mm -hmm. thought, well, let me say something about climate change. And so I read, I read all the big reports that had been written again. So this is like in 2002, 2003. And there was no question that all of these reports agreed that man-made climate change was underway. Although the statements in the IPCC were still like the headline statements were still pretty wimpy by well, today's but that standards. Has, but that was, right, but that was to do with the IPCC's rhetorical style. I mean, when you read the contents, it was clear that they were saying, you right. know, the balance of evidence, discernible human impact, blah, right. blah, blah. It was all very caveated, very yeah, right. 
cautious and, you know, scientific, but, you know, it was, it was there. Yeah. And there was particularly of interest, there was an NRC report. The Bush administration had asked the academy specifically to look at the question of whether or not American scientists agreed with the IPCC uh-huh. on that. So there'd been this NRC report that had come out just a couple of years before in which the NRC said, yes, uh, there's no, I mean, yeah, there's like no difference between American scientists think and European scientists think. So I had read all this stuff, but then I thought to myself, well, the thing is, one of the things you know as a historian or a sociologist or a social scientist of any kind is that just because the leadership of an organization says something doesn't necessarily mean that the rank and file agree. Right. right. I mean, the Pope tells Catholics not to use birth control. Right. But, you know, <laughs> right. So, um, so I started thinking, how can I, how can I test what ordinary scientists think? Like, how can I answer that question? Is there a consensus among the rank and file? And so I came up with this idea of just doing an analysis of the scientific literature yeah. using ISI, the Institute for Scientific Information Database. Again, this is before Google Scholar. Um, to do a random sampling of the scientific literature in climate science, so not public opinion, but actual published peer-reviewed scientific papers, to see whether or not, you know, to see how much dissent there is within the scientific community. And Mm -hmm. honestly, I fully expected to discover dissent. And what I saw, I saw something really clear that I wrote about at the time, although I feel like people still didn't entirely understand it, There was really no debate in the scientific community about the fact that climate change, man-made climate change, was underway. What there was was a big debate about – a debate that I called tempo and mode because it was very similar to to the history of evolutionary biology. What I saw in this literature was almost identical – to what you could have said in the 1930s about evolutionary biology. In 1930, nobody doubted that there was evolution. Mm. But there was a big debate about what George Gaylord Simpson called tempo and mode. How mm. quickly does it happen and what yeah. is the mode? Is it always incremental like Darwin said or is there the possibility of like big jumps? Yeah. Right? And that was what I was seeing in the literature of climate change. Nobody was doubting that climate change was happening, but there were a lot of arguments about, you know, are there tipping points? How soon will this happen? Um, how bad will it be? Um, you know, how much heat uptake, you know, with the oceans? I mean, so there was a lot of discussion about the details, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, but not about the basic fact. Right. And so that's what I wrote up in 2004. Well, what happened was, so I presented that at AAAS, and it was part of this big kind of um, grand, like, giant history of science lecture. It was an hour long. There were like 600 people there. And I had one slide where I summarized the results of this analysis. And at the end of the talk, the only thing anybody wanted to ask about was this. I bet. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, in hindsight, it's obvious. At the time, it wasn't. And I even had like this guy from ExxonMobil come up to me, and I really regret that I... Don't remember who he was, but um, yeah. So everybody just wanted to Wait, talk. What did the ExxonMobil guy say? Oh, he just wanted to know more. He oh, was like okay. really interested. Yeah, no, <laughs> he's really interested. He goes, "This is really interesting." You know, where are, have you published this? Blah blah blah. So afterwards, several people said to me, "You really need to publish this." So I just took out that piece, the bit about the scientific consensus mm-hmm. on climate change, and I submitted it to Science Magazine, and mm-hmm. they published that, and that was in two thousand four. Right. So this is the big one. Big one that. Right. So that's when my life changed. (laughs) Right. So what happened was then I started getting attacked. Yeah. I became the target of the climate change denial machine. Like how bad? 
bad. Yeah, hate mail, threatening phone calls, all the terrible yeah. stuff that like Catherine Hayo talks about today. Yeah, that all happened to be. Yeah. You know? How were you affected badly by it? Oh yeah, it was horrible. I had like no idea what was going on. It was really scary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got sick. I mean, I got a lawyer. <laughs> it was it was a it was a bad time. But like again, the silver lining thing. So I really didn't know what was going on, and I mentioned it to a colleague. Oh, you know, must know Inez Fung. Uh, a little, yeah. Yeah. So I was at some meeting with Inez, and I just mentioned that this was happening, and she said to me, "You need to call Ben Santer." And I didn't know who Ben Santer was at the time; mm-hmm. never even heard of him. So I call him up and I said, "You know, my name is Naomi Reskus." Inez Fung said, "I should talk to you about what's happening to me." And Ben, it was like the floodgates opened, and uh-huh. started telling me this whole story uh-huh. about how he had been attacked by Fred Seitz and. How yeah. it was like just like the tobacco industry and like this like incredible like floodgate of stuff yeah. that he had never talked to anybody about what had happened really? to him. No, no one. Uh. He had like nobody had cared and he it was like this terrible thing he had suffered through wow. in silence. And um anyway, one thing led to another. I met Eric Conway and Eric had the same story about what had happened to the ozone scientists. Uh-huh. So we started comparing notes and we decided that there was a story that needed to be told and we would do it together. Um, so I put the oceanography book on hold. I thought it's a good idea, but this is more important. Yeah. And so, um, Eric and I wrote Merchants of Doubt. Right. Yeah. So, um, because that book has become so famous, uh, and, and, um, and well known, and talk, I'm sure you've talked about it many, many, many times. Hundreds. <laughs> um, and I want to get to the new one, yeah. but um, is there anything more we should say about it, or or, or should we yeah. just leave it there and go to the new one? Yeah, I think we can leave it there because, like you say, I mean, there's many. I've talked about it so many times, and many of my public lectures are online. If people are interested, they yeah. can like all they have to do is well, if they type Arescus Merchants of Doubt or. My the best version of the talk was one called the American Denial of Global Warming. Uh-huh. That's still online. I, that was one of the first times I started talking about this material, and it was just one of those talks where it all came together just right. So that's still online and has like a million views or something. So and there's people, a movie even. And then we made a film, right? There's <laughs> yeah. a film of Merchants of Doubt. So yeah, there's yeah. lots of stuff out there for people who are interested. Okay, so let's talk about the new one, um, uh, which is called Why Trust Science, uh, which I've just read. And um, wonderful book. So, um, well, maybe we should just start. I mean, uh, um, I mean, you try to answer in the book the the question posed by the title, uh, and so maybe we should just start by asking why should we trust science? Right. Okay. So the short answer of the book is most people think that we should trust if most people think that if we should trust science it's either because scientists are brilliant and geniuses or because scientists use the scientific method right. and the scientific method produces reliable results so i argue that neither of those is correct right. um the first isn't correct because well some scientists are genius but most scientists are ordinary <laughs> people and if we look at the history of science we see that scientists make plenty of mistakes and are subject to um pretty much all the same biases um, that ordinary people are. So the reason for science being trustworthy cannot simply reside in the excellence of individual scientists. So we can throw that out. I can personally vouch for all of that. Thank you, yes. I think any of us who've had a scientific career after a certain point, we, we kind of know this, right? You know. 
So, um, so then the second one is this notion of the scientific method. And this is um, a little harder to dislodge because so many of us have been taught this. And it's usually some kind of version of a hypothetical deductive model, right? right. We have a yep. hypothesis, we do some kind of experiment or observation to test it, and then life is great. But if you look at the history of science, what you find is that some small portion of scientific work does fit the hypothetical mm-hmm. deductive model, but most of it doesn't. Right. It's just a huge amount of things that scientists do, including, you know, we, you and I were talking last night about modeling. I mean, there's all this work that people do in climate science now, which is modeling, and it's not exactly the hypothetical deductive model. It's not the scientific method as we were taught it in school. But it's not just climate science. I mean, this is true all over well, the place. I mean, is this, is, do you think, there though, that there's a distinction to be made here between the experimental and the observational sciences? I mean, it, in, in earth sciences, of course, we can't do real experiments. Right. So, well, that's early, a, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's a traditional distinction, and I think it holds up, up to a point. But even in the so-called experimental sciences, there's just it's just doesn't work because the other mm. part is so as an empirical description of science it fails but it also fails logically and philosophers mm. have written a lot about this so you know a lot of what i've done in my work is uncontroversial in some corner but very controversial like somewhere else so for <laughs> philosophers the logical problems of the hypothetical deductive model are completely uncontroversial this yeah. is something that's been known and recognized for a long time and it's what's known as the fallacy of affirming the consequent if you have a hypothesis, you do an experiment, and the experiment succeeds, like it does what you think it should, if you then conclude that your hypothesis is correct, that is logically fallacious, because there are many other reasons why you could have got right. that result. Yeah. And it's quite possible that there could be other hypotheses that are also consistent with that result. Yeah. So it's logically... In, so the hypothetical deductive model... What so many of us were taught in school is actually logically incorrect. Right. Yikes. So, right. So I say, but that's okay because the fact is we do a lot of other stuff in science. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, well, well, then how can we know if a claim is good or bad, right or wrong? And so that's where I draw on a large body of work that other people have done. So this isn't like all my own work. I'm just sort of pulling together a, a lot of different threads to look at the social aspect of science and to argue that what really is crucial in science is the social processes of vetting claims. In other words, I don't just say, here's my finding. I show it to you at a conference and you say, Naomi, you're wrong because you forgot about X or you missed Y or I don't believe it because of Z. And then I have to go back and address it. And that process, that interactive process where, you know, in a sense we pool our resources and we work, together i mean we work together and it could be competitive and it can even be antagonistic but it's ultimately a collective enterprise like if you if i submit a paper and you review it you may review it you might be really nasty you might be a mean reviewer but you're still participating in a process with me right right so in a way we're still working together even if we're like at odds right right and it's that process of vetting claims and looking at claims from a lot of different angles that, I think, my argument is that that's actually the basis for the reliability of scientific claims. The other funny thing that I realized um, more and more in, in talking to people who do history and philosophy of science is that, you know, we talk about how scientists are taught the scientific method. 
But the truth is, I don't know that I really ever was taught mm. the scientific method. I don't know that I was ever really taught anything about how mm. science works or why we should believe it. You're just taught how to do it. Right. Right. So if you walk into science class, you're taught, right. you know, in physics or chemistry, you're taught physics or chemistry. You're taught very little. I mean, you have a little bit of, in the book somewhere, there's a page with some guys with gray beards right. and they say so-and-so did something. Right. That's but right. we don't get, it's not like we're getting some wrong version of the history or philosophy of science. No, that's we're not right. getting any version no, of it. No, that's right. In fact, you're, you're right. You, you're not actually taught methods. I mean, you're not taught scientific methods when you learn. It's more of an apprenticeship. You learn yeah. by doing. You you read papers, you see what they've done, you model that. Right. Um, so it is true, the whole idea of the scientific method, it's actually sort of weird. Like, why does that even persist? But it is in most high school textbooks. So it's what children are taught about what science is. And yeah. so if you don't become a scientist, but you have high school science, the only thing you really know about science in most cases is what was in those high school textbooks. And so for a lot of people, that is, yeah. you know, the hypothetical deductive model. Right. But so if we, if we, um, so, you, so if we say, well, the social process is how claims are vetted and how science arrives at its conclusions, but then to make that a little more, to, to push it one step further, you, in the book, you talk a lot about consensus mm -hmm. and the importance of consensus. And is it, right. is it, is it or is it not fair to summarize the bottom line as of when we should trust science? If yes. we, rather than why, we ask under what conditions, right. in what cases should we trust science? Like you yes. see consensus as the bottom line? Yes, with an important caveat. So yes. So basically what I want to argue about, I don't think that consensus is the goal of science. I see it as an emergent property. Right. That sometimes scientists do enough work of various different kinds to come to a position where scientists say, yeah, we're pretty sure this is right. And you, and at that point, scientists move on to the next question, right? right? One of the key things about science, and Thomas Kuhn wrote about this a long time ago, that what we call progress in science and why we see science as progressive in a way that maybe art history isn't, let's say, is because scientists do settle things and move on and say, okay, we know there's evolution. We're not going to argue about that anymore. Right. We know there's climate change. We're not going to argue about that anymore, right? Although now we live in a world where we've been forced to argue about it for political reasons. But right. the point is, and a consensus emerges that the data are adequate to say, yes, this is true. And then you move on. So when you have a consensus, it's a signal that the scientific community has concluded that something is known. Right. Right. Um, so it's a kind of marker. And so my argument is that if we have consensus, then yes, that's telling us that we should trust the science because this thing has been scientifically established with the caveat though, that the community that's done that is, is sufficiently large and diverse that we right. can trust it. And so that's the other major part of the argument that one of the tricky things about history of science, and this is something that, you know, climate deniers will throw in my face as if I didn't know it, right? They'll say, oh, but in the past scientists said X and then later they changed their mind. I mean, right. I think it might have even been Dick Lindzen now that I think about it, right. who one time said, well, what about, you know, you know, scientists rejected continental drift? I'm like, yeah, I know. I wrote the book on that. <laughs> you know, it's like, like you think you're telling me something I don't know, of course, but it's a legitimate question, right? Yeah. Given that we know that scientists in the past have sometimes come to conclusions that we would now say were wrong, that does put us in a tricky position now for trying to evaluate contemporary scientific claims. And so what I do in the book is then to look at some examples where we could say, yes, scientists went wrong. And one of the, we see two things in those cases. One of them is we find that almost invariably there actually was not a consensus. Right. That people have claimed in hindsight, oh, everyone thought the earth was flat or everyone rejected content. But it's not actually true. Right. Actually, 
The continental drift debate was never resolved by saying it's false. It was resolved by saying it's, we don't know, it's not established. You know, we, we're not, but there were definitely people, particularly in Europe, who thought continental drift maybe was right and thought that Americans had been too quick to dismiss it. And there were even some people in the United States who supported it. And many of these other examples that I look in the book, if we look closely, we find that there was actually significant, important, informed dissent in the scientific community at that time. Right. And somebody at that time could have recognized it. Bingo. Right. So if you had looked at it and said, well, is there really a consensus here? You would have seen, no, actually there's not. So that's a really important thing for us to know, that many of these alleged claims about prior consensus are actually incorrect. Right. But the other thing that I look at is um, this issue that I call methodological fetishism, that yeah. when we see examples where scientists do seem to have gone wrong in hindsight, one of the things I think we can see is that often some scientists are dismissive of lines of evidence because it doesn't fit right. their notion of what good science or good data look like. Right. So the clearest example of this is the example I use of dental floss, which uh -huh. was fun to write about. Yeah. So, you know, there was this big thing a couple of years ago that you may have seen in the newspapers where the newspapers reported that there was no good scientific evidence that dental floss did you any good. Yeah. So I decided to look into that because one of the newspapers, I can't remember if it was the New York Times, the Washington Post, but some, you know, reputable news agency used this expression that there was no good evidence. And so I started looking into this. Well, well, what was the evidence? Why did we think that there was evidence for dental floss if right. there really wasn't? And what I discovered was actually there was plenty of evidence. But what we didn't have was the gold standard of a randomized double-blind clinical trial. Yeah. And so this particular reporter who had sort of broke the story made what I think was an insane intellectual error which is conflating not having a particular kind of evidence with not having evidence. Right. Those are two very different claims. So if we go back to the notion of the randomized double-blind clinical trial, we all know that there's lots of really great reasons that randomized double-blind clinical trials, if you can do them, are a really good thing to do. Right. And we know there's lots of reasons why it's bad if trials are not double-blind. Right. But you can't do a blinded trial of dental floss. Right. You can't do a blind, even a single blind. I mean, people know if their teeth are being flossed or not, right? Just like you can't make another planet and not put carbon dioxide Correct. on it. Correct. And you can't do <laughs> randomized trials of nutrition. Right. There are a lot of really important things that cannot, cannot meet that particular standard. Right. So that standard is good for certain kinds of things, particularly biomedicine, if you're testing a new drug or some kind of medical intervention. The point is, Yes, if you can have that kind of evidence, that's great. But if if it's not possible to have evidence of that kind, like you say, it's not possible to build another Earth yeah. and you know do a different Earth <laughs> with a different atmosphere. Well, you don't just throw up your hands and say you know nothing. Right. And in fact, in the dental floss case, it turns out there's a ton of clinical evidence for the benefits of dental floss. And all these dentists and periodontists who were interviewed all said, yes, we see it in our patients. Right. So it gets back to the observational versus experimental distinction. Yeah. Right. And you can't do an experiment because it would be unethical to deliberately not floss the teeth. You know. So there are all kinds of constraints about what kinds of experiments you can do, either for epistemic or ethical reasons. But it doesn't mean you don't have any evidence. Right. And so part of the argument of the book is to say that – 
It's really important for the scientific community to be open to diverse forms of evidence and to understand that depending upon the character of the problem, the source of evidence that you can gather will be different. And I mean, more generally, this this is another line of argument for why there isn't a single scientific method. And it's not just the hypothetical deductive model has problems, but that different fields have very different standards of evidence by necessity. Exactly. And so, you know, if you just want to describe what's happening, you can't find any one right. model that fits it. And it also explains why people from one field of science sometimes get horrified when they look at another. Exactly. So, you know, in, in climate, for example, the, um, for example, to take a very a prominent piece of science. So with the surface temperature record, um, there are all these adjustments that are done because as, you go back in time, the observing system was different, the observing practices were different, and so you don't want to introduce fake artifacts into the records. But doing this horrifies people in laboratory sciences for whom the standard is, well, you run the experiment, you run the experiment again, you run the experiment again the same way, so you get good statistics and you beat down the noise, and and you would never go back and adjust the data from some experiment, but that's because it's a different situation. In, in climate, you can't go back and do exactly. it again. There's, it's hopeless. But if you know something changed, you try to deal with it. But it, right. there's all these cases of of scientists from one field telling science in another, you know, you, you, this can't be right. You guys are doing something totally unacceptable. But in fact, it's a rational response to what the situation actually is. Exactly. And I yeah. think, I mean, this is one of the reasons why, you know, there's almost no dissent in the climate science community about the reality of climate change man-made climate change, but a physicist or a chemist can come and look at this and get all, like, get their knickers in a twist, as we used to say in Australia, right? right? <laughs> because to them, it looks really weird, and then they start wondering, well, what the heck's going on here? So I think, you know, if there's one message of my book, or one thing I hope would come out of this book would be that scientists would read this book, and that they would come to appreciate exactly this point, that science is actually very diverse, and it has to be diverse because the character of the problems we study Right. are diverse. And as you just said, I mean, one of the reasons we build models in climate science is because we can't experiment. Well, we have done one experiment on the earth, right? We did the experiment of increasing the greenhouse gas concentration, which is what Roger Revelle predicted, you know, 60 years ago, right? But, you know, we can't build a second earth and right. then see what happens if we tinker yeah. with it, right? So we have to figure out ways to study the problem. And so models are a way of creating a kind of synthetic earth, right? A simulated earth in which we can tinker with it and we can say, well, what yeah. happens if we do this? Yeah. Um, and that's an important tool. It's not the same as a laboratory experiment, yeah. uh, nor is it the same as, you know, all kinds of other things that people might do, but it's a legitimate methodology for addressing the problem that we have. The point is it's, compl yeah. it's complicated. And I feel like one of the things... I've learned, you know, in 30 years of doing science and history of science is I feel like we should all cut each other slack. You know, I feel like scientists can be really mean and really judgmental. And You think? Yeah. <laughs> and kind of obnoxious. And so it's like, you know, guys, there's been a lot of different kinds of science in the history of science, and a lot of it has been really good. And, you know, the best example of this is I've been in places with physicists who are dismissive of observational science and who think, you right. know, the old Rutherford thing, it's all just stamp collecting, right? Right. And I was like, well, what about Darwin? You right. know, Darwin is probably one of the three greatest scientists that ever walked this planet. kind of was stamp collecting. And it was totally stamp collecting. <laughs> it was this huge observational project. That's why his books are so long, right? Um, he 
he, I mean, he did some microscope work. He looked at barnacles. He never did experiments. You know, right. he watched breeders. He thought of that breeders were doing a kind of experiment and he observed them and that, you know, the breeding was this hugely important metaphor for him mm. in coming up with the notion of natural selection. But it's, it's observational. It's analogical. It's metaphorical. Yeah. Um, and it's almost entirely not mathematical either. And that's the other thing too, you know, sometimes I will have scientists say to me, well, if it's not mathematical, it's not science. I'm like, well, Charles Darwin would not have agreed with that. You know, it's like, hello, right? You know, yeah. Charles Lyell. I mean, there's a lot of great scientists in the history of science whose yeah. work was not mathematical. Right. Right? Well, then, yeah, that's clearly just snobbery. The point is in diversity is strength. It's good that science is diverse right. and it's, I think the more diverse a science is, the more likely it is to be right. Because if you only do one thing and it turns out there's a flaw in that thing, then everything's lost. Whereas if you do a lot of different things and it turns out one piece of it is not so great, you still have all the other pieces. And that's, in a way, my argument for climate science. I mean, one of the great strengths of climate science today is the incredible range of different kinds of yeah. tools that people have brought to bear on this question. Yeah. So can we, I thought maybe we, we could try to talk about what some of the challenges to the, uh, to the idea that consensus and that social process are important might be. So, um, one might be, um, you know, you, you've heard, uh, probably heard some people say, you know, science isn't, isn't a democracy. It isn't done by popular vote. And, yeah, well, and that's this notion sort of sounds like that a little bit. So yeah, but that's how, how a com complete that? conflation of, political processes with intellectual processes, right? right? When we talk about consensus in science, we're not saying scientists vote. I mean, you don't go to AGU and have a vote. Right. No, it's not about voting. It's about a process. It's about an intellectual process of engagement where people talk, people argue, people criticize, people evaluate, people may replicate experiments in some cases, or people may try to do the same thing in a different way. And through that process, people come to conclusions. And it's not coerced, Um it doesn't have a deadline, right? It's not like right. November 4th, we're all going to vote. No, right. it's a process and it may take a short amount of time, may take a long time. So when I look back on my plate tectonics work, I used to think about the continental drift debate and the plate tectonic debate as two different things. I no longer view it that way. Yeah. Now I actually think it was one debate that took 40 years. Yeah. And that with the benefit of hindsight, what we realize is scientists had this discussion it really got cut off because of World War II. And then after World War II, it took a little time for people to kind of come back to the argument. And that was partly because of military secrecy. But when they come back to the argument and they look at it again and they bring new evidence to bear, then they say, oh, yes, this is true. And this consensus emerges. And no one challenges the consensus on plate tectonics because it's not politically controversial. Right. But if you wanted to, you know, if, if for some reason plate tectonics upset you, the way climate change upsets people, right. you could easily have had a big fight about that too. Right. Right. And, and I mean, so, right. So let me ask another related question, um, which has troubled me a lot uh, just because of the political situation today in the United States and elsewhere in the climate denial movement. But it's a general question you could ask about any, science uh scientific situation where there where there may be consensus uh what's the right response to the what we might call the galileo gambit where somebody says you know yeah. galileo right I, the system is corrupt right I, and so the social process is essentially is dysfunctional right because everybody's got on the bandwagon whether because of 
just groupthink or corruption or some set of incentives. You know, the scientists are trying to get grants or whatever, so they have to mm-hmm. go along. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, in other words, somebody who doesn't want to accept the authority yeah. of that social process, right? You know, to an outsider, right? How is one to judge that? Yeah. Well, again, the shoe is on the other foot. And this is one of the things that's amazing to me about climate change deniers that they say these things with a straight face. Because it wasn't the scientific community that oppressed Galileo. It was the Catholic Church, which was the government, the ruling government <laughs> of its time. So actually, the Catholic Church oppressing Galileo is quite similar to the Trump administration oppressing climate scientists, right? So the correct analogy there is the people who criticize climate scientists, right? Yeah, but- so I mean, if there's a Galileo in the story, the Galileo is Jim Hansen or Ben Santer, right? right. Not some climate change denier who is just coming out of left field, has done no work, doesn't understand it, and is right. not actually participating in the scientific community. If we forget yeah. about Galileo and okay. the historical answer, there, oh. but we just ask the general question of... Can science ever be corrupt? Can science be corrupt or even just bandwagon? You know, I mean, Or let me ask it another way. Right. You, know, let's, you said earlier that sometimes things get established by the social processes of science and then scientists move on. Mm-hmm. So then you have... Um, uh, sometimes have relatively isolated scientists, but who may be very uh, knowledgeable and brilliant. And I'm thinking of Dick Lindzen here, who I argued um, with just uh, a couple of days ago, um, who are very persuasive and who know the evidence very well and have a different view of it. And it can be very hard to uh, argue with him in particular, um, or there could be, but there could be others uh, like him in other fields. Um, And I think, Part of the reason, I mean, the, the, in the peer review process, we argue, and that's the social process of science, and that establishes what it establishes. Right. But an individual scientist like me has a hard job of doing it because what happens is, um, and this is the bandwagon effect uh, to some extent, if I'm going to be completely um, honest and interpret it in the, in the way that I think your book causes me to see it, is that we move on, and that means that the average working scientist doesn't spend their every day being in contact with Hmm. all the debates that led to that consensus because you go on and you do the next thing. And so you get a little bit rusty, Hmm. you know, you're not as in touch with all the, the, the challenges and debates that led to that point. And so then when somebody, you know, comes very persuasively and attacks all that, those foundations that we Hmm. now sort of take for granted on our day to day life, because we have moved on, Hmm. it becomes difficult to go back and have the whole debate again. And we might say we don't need to because we've had it through peer review, but in that moment, one feels very challenged. And so, you know. Well, yes, absolutely. And I'd say there's two things I'd say to that. First of all, this is a very strong argument for the value of what I do, that is to say the importance of history of science. Because it wouldn't be productive for all scientists to have to constantly be going back and revisiting old debates in order to have an argument with Dick Lindzen, right? That would be a gigantic waste of human resources. However, it is useful for scientists to understand something about the history and the development of their own field so that if legitimate questions come up, and personally, you know, my view of Dick Lindzen is he's totally entitled to his opinion, but so what? I mean, he's one guy compared to, you know, there's now like, what, 50,000 articles that have been published in the peer-reviewed literature on climate science, you know. So, um, but... But it is important to be able to answer these questions, not because of one grouchy old scientist like Dick Lindzen, but because the public has a right to ask these questions, right? The public has a right to ask, why should we trust science? The public has a right to ask, 
well, how do you know it's not volcanoes? How do you know it's not natural? Right, These right. are all legitimate questions. And it is the case, I think, that often scientists don't do an excellent job of answering those questions in part because of what you just said, yeah. that they actually, you know, maybe they're young and maybe a lot of this stuff was settled before they even came into the field or maybe it was so long ago they've actually forgotten, you know, what was, what was the key argument there, right? And that's where I think history of science plays a really useful role because, you know, if I can write an article or a book that summarizes some of the key developments that a young scientist could read and say, oh, okay, that's good to know. So one of the things I try to do in my own work is if my students or the public ask questions, you know, to take those questions on board. Yeah. So it is legitimate. There is a question, but I think we can answer it. Yeah. So, I mean, and I wonder if we could talk a little more about this, about the role of the history of science. I mean, so, because I guess the traditional view of how the history gets into the training of scientists would be that, you know, things get settled, we move on, maybe people write review articles and things, it ends up in textbooks, um, and then we learn it in school, but that textbook, those textbook views are often relatively not historical in the sense that right. they leave out the stuff that people now think is wrong, they leave out the debates that are considered settled. So um, I guess that's what you're saying is sort of the role right. of the history of science it, right. I, I have the, I mean, we've already talked about how most of us who are trained as scientists are not taught the history of science very much. I guess you'd argue it should be part of our yeah. curriculum a little more. Yeah, I think that the whole thing would go better, that you'd have an easier time dealing with Dick Lindzen, that we'd all do a better job of explaining what we do to the public if we had a little bit of a broader perspective. Because, you know, the thing about textbooks is it's a sort of, fait accompli, right? The, yep. the information is presented as factual, but you don't learn anything about how you got there, which means two things get lost. One is why some of the counter arguments were rejected. So for example, you know, how do we know it's not the sun, right? That's a legitimate yep. question. Sure. And if you know something about the history of climate science, you know what the answer to that is. Yeah. But if you come into the field today and you don't know anything about the history and you just start reading the literature, you know, you don't actually know what the answer to that question is, probably. Are there any um, ways you can point to, whether specific cases or, or otherwise, in which the history of science or science and technology studies generally, including philosophy, too, if we want to, or, or sociology, have influenced the practice of science, either in climate science or other fields? Or is it still... Uh... Yeah, that's a really good question. Um I don't know. I mean, there's certainly like bad influences. For example, a lot of scientists are paparians. They believe in falsification. Yep, yep. And, you know, in my book, I talk about that. Why paparian philosophy of science became so influential, I don't know. But I certainly, I've certainly had the experience that of being in places where scientists have claimed that the method of science is falsification. Meaning that you can't prove something's true, but you can prove it's not true. If right. you have one counterexample that of some general law, then that's right. Popper's idea. And so, right. And yeah, I think a lot of people still do. A lot of people that. have that idea. And so, I mean, that's an example where a little philosophy is a dangerous thing, <laughs> right? You know, so, or, right. So, like any field, just sort of dabbling or knowing a little to the, tidbit of this or that is not necessarily helpful. But on the good side, um, Londa Schiebinger, who's a historian of science, who's done a lot of work on women in science and gender in science, she wrote a book a few years ago, and I'm sorry the title is escaping me, but, but it, it was, was very much from the perspective of history and philosophy of science, because she was showing how like feminist scientists and feminist philosophers and historians had 
led some scientists to re-examine certain questions, particularly in areas like paleoanthropology, um, where there were a lot of sexist assumptions, gendered assumptions had been built into the interpretation of relatively limited numbers of you know human fossils, let's say. Yeah. Um, and how revisiting it through a feminist perspective had made people recognize some of the gendered assumptions mm-hmm. in those sciences and thereby revise them and make them better. So I think we do have a pretty good example there. So that influenced um, the actual practice of the science. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. And I think also in maybe some other areas of biology as well, think about Evelyn Fox Keller's work in the history oh. of biology, that um, by making scientists more aware of their own biases, it's helped at least some scientists to... Um, to address those biases and to be better scientists. Yeah, I mean, I th- well, I think actually emergence of doubt is well known among the climate scientists and has maybe given people a little bit of confidence, you oh. know, in the in the social that's the nice working of, of the social process. Oh, that's well, that's nice my perception. Thank you. I hope that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's well, um, is there anything else that we no. should be talking about that we're not? No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I guess I should just put in a plug. I have now finally finished my oceanography book. Oh, it's yeah. called Science on a Mission, American yeah. Oceanography from the Cold War to Climate Change. And that will be published by the University of Chicago Press next year. So sometime in 2020. Okay. So Why Trust Science comes out first in a couple of months yeah, or so? Yeah, should be out in October. And then only a few months after that. Well, I don't know how long it will take to, for Chicago to put it into production. It's a big book. It's a long book. Okay. Um, but uh, some t- probably before the end of 2020. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to You're talk welcome. to me. You're welcome. Yeah, fun talking to you. All right. What an honor and a privilege to talk to Naomi Oreskes. That conversation, of course, was recorded some time ago, in the summer of 2019, actually. And so her new book, Why Trust Science, has now been out for a couple of months and you should read it. The next one, Science on a Mission, is not yet out as I speak this, but hopefully will be soon. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Dana Hom, and our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Thanks for listening.